please be seated and turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. We'll be reading the first seven verses of this. You'll find this on page 638. Page 638, if you're using a pew Bible. Page 638. Ezra chapter 3, be reading the first seven verses. Hear now the word of God. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on his basis. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. I want to paint a picture, a scenario for you. You've traveled a long distance, and you've come to a place once called home by your forebears, your ancestors. Trees are growing wild. Jackals, wolves, prowl among heaps of shattered masonry. Crumbling stonework and charred timbers mark the sites of palaces and towers, and they choke the streets. City walls and gates are leveled to the ground. You are in temporary housing, and you're surrounded by hostile and jealous people. What would you do? Well, my friends, what these folks did that we see here in Ezra 3, what these folks did is they took the time and the energy to start the sacrifices again. They showed priority 
to the worship of God, and particularly in terms of that central truth of worship. That is that we approach God, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of another. As they did so, they showed their religious priority. And they were willing to reinstitute the sacrifices even before starting to rebuild the temple. Why? Why did they do that? Why was the institution of sacrifices more urgent than setting up the building? Well, as I suggested a moment ago, in order to make atonement, in order to symbolize that paying of the price that God requires. It was also to obtain God's assistance in rebuilding the temple. It was also to strengthen their own hearts and hands in that great work against so many enemies that were surrounding them. It was to show proper priorities, wanting to begin with God and his worship to do what they can in worship. Maybe they were not able to do everything. They didn't have the temple, but they did what they could. And so they reinstituted the sacrifices, as we read here in the first part of Ezra chapter 3. Now, before we get into the bulk of the, the meat of the message today, I want to say, uh, by way of introduction, one other thing. And that is, be aware of a grand spiritual scheme or theme that overarches everything that's going on here. We have to paint the picture, the setting, which we see here. They described just a minute ago of these people coming back into the land, the desolation, the, all the challenges. And that, of course, doing so gives texture and local color. But at the same time, what is being portrayed physically is symbolic of a spiritual reality. Remember the last couple of weeks I've mentioned about a Christian view of history and the whole idea of, of, um, of how part of what a Christian view of history is all about is the, the conflict, if you will. And in many ways, the flesh and blood conflict, how it, how it plays itself out in real flesh and blood reality. But at the same time, we need again to remember that that reality of conflict is one that is being fought out in the heavenlies. It's a reality of which we know only a few hints in the Old Testament, we know a bit more, a few more hints in the New. But as I trust we will see, it's, that's the backdrop, if you will. That's the reality that we have, the, the hidden, what is largely hidden to us, hinted at here and there, Daniel 10, Job 1 and 2, hinted at, but nevertheless, so important in terms of what these people were going through and by extension what we go through as well. As a matter of fact, the very fact that they would be willing 
to offer worship, to focus on God, not only shows their priorities, but it shows that they understood that it was God who was their refuge and their strength. So the first major point then today is the preparation for worship. The preparation for worship, we read here in terms of the setting that it was in the seventh month. The seventh month. The seventh month, apparently, of Cyrus's, King Cyrus's first year of reign, the month Tishrai. That is to say, you remember King Cyrus was the, was the ruler who gave them permission to come back into the land and to set up the temple. The seventh month, of course, was the one that was most important in terms of the liturgical calendar. We see this in Numbers 29 and Leviticus 23. Now, not only is the setting in terms of time, but also in terms of place. The children of Israel, we are told here, were in the cities. They were in the cities. They had been there for only a short time, since the journey would have taken at least four months, and they started in the spring. By the way, Tishrei would be September, October, so right about our time frame here, uh, right now. So they, their, their journey would have taken four months, and they had settled back in their ancient or ancestral homelands. Notice what it, we also read here in verse 1. The people gathered themselves as one man to Jerusalem. That's interesting, isn't it? They gathered as one man, as one body, we might even say, to Jerusalem. And of course, this shows what we find in Psalm 133 that we'll sing after the benediction this afternoon of those of, of how good a thing it is when brethren delight to dwell together in unity. Great oneness of mind and spirit. That's what they were experiencing. But notice also the symbolism here. It doesn't say the children of Judah, does it? It says the children of Israel. And this is, hard, this, this is pointing to the idea of Judah and Israel united and indeed of being able to worship at one central location. So that's the setting in terms of the preparation for worship. But not only do we have the setting, but we also have the setting up. Notice the leaders, Jeshua, or another way of saying Joshua, Yahweh, Jehovah is salvation. Plus his brothers, plus Zerubbabel, that's a Persian name, seed or descendant of Babylon, and his brothers. What is their work here? Well, we are told that they all stood up. Verse 2, they arose, they stood up, which implies an intention to do something. And they built the altar. The altar, an altar, of course, was the offering of sacrifices. Notice again, though, it is not the altar of Israel. It is, first of all, the altar, but it's not the altar of Israel, but the altar of the God of Israel. Worship, my friends, is God-centered, and God's wrath had to be appeased. This altar was set up, 
verse 2, in order to offer burnt offerings on it. And so the work then had to do with the altar for the sacrifices. But in terms of the setting up, notice something very interesting here. Verse 2, again, the end of it, it was as it is written in the law. As it is written in the law. The law, my friends, is written down. And the law, of course, what was the law that is being referred to here? First of all, the law concerning the altar, Exodus 20. It was to be of unhewn stones, not, not according to craftsmanship, unhewn stones. And it was also in terms of the burnt offerings. For the law then prescribed what those offerings would be. And so as it is written in the law then, in terms of the altar, but also in terms of the burnt offerings themselves, they were adhering to the law. And it was not only the law, but the law of Moses, the man of God. The great prophet then, whom God, with whom God had spoken face to face, as we remember. Moses, who was head over the house of the old covenant, Hebrews chapter 3, described here in a very special way as the man of God pointing to perhaps his extraordinary qualities or functions. This term man of God often refers to various prophets. Moses himself is called this, for example, in the title of Psalm 90. David too. King David is referred to as the man of God. So that's the preparation for the worship in terms of the setting and the setting up of it. But now secondly, let's look at the sacrifices and feast themselves. As we look at this in uh, uh, the sacrifices and feasts. First of all, their institution. Notice that it says here in verse 3, verse 3, they set the altar on its basis. So the new altar then was built on the foundations of the old that was still remaining. This was not only for the sake of convenience, but also for continuity of worship. What did they do on that altar? Verse 3, they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening. And this is the pattern that we find in places like Exodus 29 and Numbers 28. Morning and evening. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher, has a, uh, a series of devotionals called Morning and Evening. Maybe you're familiar with that, with that work. The morning, the evening. This is one of the reasons why many times churches have both morning and evening services. And of course, it's a good practice for us, isn't it? To pray in the morning and to pray in the evening. The beginning of the day, the end of the day. And so this is what we have here, morning and evening. Prayers should be offered at the beginning and at the close of a day, our own sacrifice of praise. 
Now, what are some of these, what are some of these feasts then? The first one mentioned is the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 4, the Feast of Booths. And this was described in Leviticus chapter 23. This feast included the daily burnt offerings by number. By the way, why the sacrifice? Why the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles, of tents? Well, this served as a reminder of their pilgrimage. Even as tents in the wilderness, so these people, as they came back into the land, initially had only temporary housing. Not only that, but they had been on a pilgrimage, had they not, on their way back from Babylon, back to the Promised Land. But remember, even that was a symbol, was it not, of the fact that they were just a passing through their ultimate journey was not Canaan. Their ultimate journey, their ultimate destination was heaven, seeking that city whose builder and maker is God. There's also a connection here in terms of the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. Zechariah 14, verse 18. There was great thanksgiving to God then for his great deliverance of them, and his marvelous provision at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And then we have the other offerings mentioned here, the continual burnt offerings that were to be done daily, the new moons, so when the new moon comes, so every month, obviously, when the, the festival of new moon, and then the appointed or set feast also, verse 5, for all the appointed feast of the Lord that were consecrated, those that were done seasonally, for example. But also, notice um, uh, not only that, uh, but also of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. So freewill offerings were the Lord laid something on your heart, you wanted to show your dedication to him, or there was some special occasion and those as well would be offered upon this altar. Now, what is the reason for the institution of these sacrifices and feasts? Why is it that they did this? Well, the first thing we would want to note here is because of the requirement. It was because these were, and notice verse 5, these were appointed. Notice verse 4, they kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written. Verse 4, they offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day. And here we come across what some of y'all are already aware of as a term, and that is the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. Now the regulative principle of worship, that's a fancy way of saying, let me encapsulate it for you here, Whatever is not commanded by God is forbidden, but whatever is commanded is required. That's very simple. Whatever is not commanded by God is forbidden. We're not to do in worship, but whatever is commanded is required. And so as we conduct our worship, we try very hard 
to hold to that principle, that Protestant principle, we might say, that Reformed principle, that Presbyterian principle, the regulative principle of worship. The Jews here were demonstrating a strict adherence to the law. They were being commended for this. It's not legalism, but rather they were seeking to be obedient to God. So, why set up the sacrifices? First of all, because of the requirement, because this is what God had ordained. But secondly, because of the fear. Because of the fear. Now, the the, uh, New King James says, uh, though fear had come upon them, I think it might be better to say, perhaps because fear had come upon them. But in any case, they were afraid of those people, that hostile populace that was surrounding them. Fear had come upon them because the people of those countries. Those people that had surrounded them were possibly upset because of the Jews tearing down a pagan altar. They were upset undoubtedly because as the Jews came back, here you have this rival people coming in and not only inhabiting the land, but more than that, claiming that their way was the only true way to worship. And so just as we find hostility in our own day, by those who hate us in our society, and they do, many of them. They hate us because we have the audacity to say there's only one way of salvation, and there's only one way of worship. And so these people then, you see, these people, as they came in, as the Jews were coming back, these people that surround, were surrounding them in this area were upset. They were angry. They were hostile. And as a result, you can understand why there would be fear. But what is the solution? Why, the solution is, verse 3, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. So how is it then that this was a solution? How is it that these sacrifices gave comfort and relieved their fear. Well, first of all, subjectively, in terms of their own feelings, they needed to be assured of God's presence. And this is a way of, of visibly showing that God was with them. They needed the protection of God because of this act of faith, namely faithful obedience to the ritual law. And so there was this, their subjective feelings, if you will. But more than that, there was also something objective here as well, outside of themselves. You know, when you read uh, Ezra chapter 9, which we'll be getting to in a number of numbers, uh, excuse me, Ezra chapter 9, uh, verse 8, the prayer of repentance, the chapter of repentance by Ezra. And Ezra says, verse 8, And now for a little while grace 
has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. You know what a peg is, you know? The little, little place on the wall where you hang your hat or hang your coat. So there's a peg there. Where is it? It's in the holy place, and God has given us that peg in his temple. And so the temple, in a sense, served a protective function. But more than that, what we find here in Ezra 3 is that the atonement itself, the sacrifice itself, is what, that is say, the sacrifice of Christ is what is being pointed to, what is being prefigured. There's an old poem called From Every Stormy Wind That Blows. And when I'm, I'm going to recite several stanzas of this in just a moment. Before I do, I want you to obviously pick up on the fact that the idea of the mercy seat is very prominent in this poem. The mercy seat was that was that cover, as it were, on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled, the atonement being made, the atoning sacrifice. So let me read you several stanzas of this poem. From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat, tis found beneath the mercy seat. There is a place where Jesus sheds the oil of gladness on our heads, a place of all on earth most sweet. It is the blood-bought mercy seat. There is a scene where spirits blend, where friend holds fellowship with friend, though sundered far by faith they meet around one common mercy seat. Ah, oh, whither could we flee for aid? When tempted, desolate, dismayed, or how the host of hell defeat had suffering saints no mercy seat. You see, my friends, the basis for deliverance the basis, basis for deliverance from fear, particularly here the fear of their enemies, is found at the cross. Our fear of God's wrath is relieved, to be sure, by means of the atonement. We have the guarantee of salvation. But at the same time, no longer do we have to fear our enemies either. We can stand boldly before kings and popes and presidents and other earthly rulers as our Protestant forebears did who are willing to be martyred for the sake of the gospel, able to suffer persecution, able to have their fears dealt with because they knew that their standing was right before God. And my friends, at the same time, 
this act of providing our salvation results in Satan being crushed. You know, Genesis 3.15, the first announcements of the, announcement of the gospel, where God addresses the serpent, addresses that snake through whom the temptation to Adam and Eve came. And what does God say? What does God say? You will, to the snake, you will bruise his heel. That is to say, you're going to, to inflict damage on Jesus. Indeed, he would die. Very act, what's going to happen? He shall crush your head. So in the very act then of the atonement, not only is God's wrath taken care of, but also Satan's, Satan is defeated. That's exactly what we saw in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, from which we read this afternoon. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse, and uh, in Colossians chapter 2, we see the context of the reality of redemption that has many different dimensions, many facets. Salvation leads us to true worship. We're not to become entangled in the ceremonial law. It is Jesus who has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And we're certainly not to be bound by man-made worship or will worship. Verse 23. But did you notice verse 15? Having talked about the fact that Jesus has taken the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. My friends, not only did Jesus' death at the cross pay the penalty for our sin. But his death at the cross has defeated Satan and his followers. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Well, having considered then the preparation for worship and the sacrifices and feasts, now thirdly, we look at the preparation for laying the foundation, for laying the foundation of the temple. And so this is to be from, this was the, from the first day, from the first day of the seventh month. So that would be around September 17th, 538 BC. And we notice here then that they, uh, uh, they uh, started, they, verse 6, they began to offer burnt offerings uh, to the Lord, even though the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. But then notice in verse 7 that now the, the preparation was going to be done in terms of laying the temple's foundation. 
So notice these people, these workers here, the masons, the carpenters, the people from Tyre and Sidon over on the Mediterranean coast. The money that was there, including silver, the food provided, the food and drink and oil. The task was to bring cedar trees from Lebanon, those famed cedars of Lebanon, to bring them to the sea and to Joppa. And this was to be done, you'll notice the end of verse 7, according to the grant of Persia. Now that might refer to a monetary grant, but more likely it refers to the granting of permission for this transaction between two Persian provinces. Two provinces of Persia, Persia having been conquered, of course, by Cyrus, the um, uh, of the Medes and uh, Babylon having been conquered by uh, the Medes and Persians under Cyprus. And so it was according to permission or according to the grant, the mandate, we might say, which they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. And there were three points of application I want to make today. The first, or four points, excuse me. The first is this. Take heart. Take heart by seeing this testimony to their courage and faith in the face of adversity. Of course, we'll talk more in Ezra about that adversity, that opposition. There will be some not-so-noble things as we go through this book. But right now, take heart by seeing this testimony to the courage and faith of these people of God in the face of adversity. My friends, this great spiritual battle in which they were caught up has been going on for thousands of years. The devil has tried to overwhelm the elect by means of persecution as in terms of the Protestant Reformation being persecuted by Roman Catholicism. The devil has tried to set up his own kingdom against God's rule, as we saw at the Tower of Babel. Yet we can take heart by seeing this example in Ezra 3 of those who kept the faith and those who had the proper priorities so that before they did anything else, they established, they reinstituted the sacrifices. So take heart by seeing their testimony. Secondly, take heart by witnessing their obedience and concern for true worship. Purity according to the covenant is one of the key themes of this book. My friends, we need in our own day not to succumb to the temptations to invent our own worship, but rather to hold to that the regulative principle of worship as found in Scripture. So take heart by witnessing their obedience and concern for true worship. Number three, take heart by seeing the destruction of Satan's power. Take heart. For you see, that was symbolized in and through 
these sacrifices of animals. The people were afraid. They offered sacrifice. It was symbolized by by the sacrifices of these animals, but my friends, it was accomplished at the cross of Christ. Take heart by seeing Satan's power destroyed. And fourthly, take heart by looking to the sure, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood and righteousness are imputed when we believe in him. In paying the price for sin and appeasing the wrath of God, Jesus brings us to the Father. And he thus comforts us and assures us and relieves us of all fear as we know that no one and nothing can separate us from his love. Are you afraid? Look to Christ. Believe on him and know for certain that he is a strong and faithful Savior who will lead you all the way home. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Lord, for the fact that Thou art the one who has given us this passage from Ezra. Not only so that we can have an example of people in their struggles, but also in their expression of faith and fidelity, but also, Father, so that we can be pointed uh, to the spiritual battle, but also to the sure, decisive act in that battle in terms of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so, our Father, we pray that we, therefore, when we are tempted to be afraid, that we may know that no matter what Satan can do, whatever he tries to do to us, directly or through his forces, we can know that we have a sure Savior in whom we can trust. So bring us through those fears, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.